Evan, welcome to Real Vision. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here, Ash. It's a pleasure to have you. We were talking a little bit uh, off camera about Ampleforth, uh, your project. Obviously, Ampleforth is typically characterized as a stable coin, as an algorithmic stable coin. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you view it and why you don't think that that description is necessarily the most apt. Yeah, I would actually go ahead and say that's typically mischaracterized as a stable coin. Um, it is, um, there are three categories of stable coins that people generally think of. They think of algorithmic stable coins um, or crypto collateralized stable coins or dollar collateralized stable coins. And these are kind of on a spectrum of like most decentralized and censorship resistant to least decentralized and censorship resistant. And we often get bucketed in this algorithmic stablecoin category. But uh, the reason why I think that's a misclassification um, is that fundamentally the purpose of the Ampleforth protocol is not to eliminate volatility, which in the case of every other stablecoin is in fact the mission. Um, now, the reason why we get misclassified as a stablecoin is because the Ample has a price target. The purchasing power of one Ample is intended to always be um, that of one 2019 CPI adjusted dollar. But what the protocol does, uh, rather than eliminate volatility, it is it translates the, the volatility of demand from price to quantity. So rather than the price per Ample fluctuating so much, Instead, what you'll see is um, the number of amples in your wallet will increase or decrease based on demand. And so for that reason, if you were to hold ample, it'd be kind of more like holding Bitcoin. It would have this risk profile of the long run where it might 10x or 1000x, right? Or, or might you know, fall in, in, in half in value. But it has this neat property where it can be used to denominate contracts like, you know, like an auto loan or a car loan or some of these DeFi contracts um, in spite of a volatile market. So right. um, our goal was to create something that's unbreakable like Bitcoin, but it, that is nonetheless useful as a unit of account. So really Ampleforth and the Ample as a currency is a decentralized unit of account. Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating concept because most people think about the fluctuation uh, of value in terms of price, but if value is held constant and you have the ability to programmatically mint and or burn uh, coins to basically keep it uh, the market capitalization uh, compensation mechanism relative to quantity, then you can have effectively a, a flat uh, a flat price. That's right. Um, and that's kind of the magic of the protocol. The Ampleforth protocol allows um, itself really to increase or decrease the quantity of tokens in user wallets without a direct transaction between peers. So it's not as though every time we need to mint or increase the supply of Ample, we send a transaction to hundreds of thousands of wallets. Um, and it's not the case, certainly, that when we need to decrease the supply that we kind of reverse airdrop from people. Um, this kind of increase and decrease in supply is governed by the adjustment of a global um, coefficient of expansion. You kind of think of it as a gravitational constant, even where like if you increase that constant, all the planets get closer together, decrease it, they get farther apart. That's kind of, you know, the the feel of how supply adjustments occur in the Ampleforth protocol. And they, they take place once per day. Um, and I would say, um, for that reason, it's really not a bank, right? So a bank typically has a balance sheet of assets and liabilities. It accepts kind of deposits and withdrawals. It might have this noted notion of like credit or debt. Um, the Ample Fourth Protocol is not a bank. It's a, it's a commodity money. So think of it as a commodity like, you know, wheat in your backyard that, you know, if, the, if, if there's a good weather season, you suddenly have more of it. If there's a bad weather season, you have less of it, except for instead of weather controlling the quantity, 
um, it's actually a price exchange rate, which turns out is much more useful because it means, you know, we could denominate a longer term contract. Like, for example, um, let's look at Bitcoin. Uh, imagine 10 years ago, you decided you were going to borrow $2 million and you're going to dominate that loan in you know, thousands of Bitcoin, right? Um, cut to today, right? And let's say it's a 30 year loan. Um, you're a third of the way in and you're on the hook for billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin to pay off the rest of this loan. It'd be ludicrous to kind of think about a long-term contract that's denominated in a currency like Bitcoin or Ethereum or any floating price currency. Right. But with something like Ample, you could have denominated that contract just as it were. Um, and in spite of the fact that the market cap of Ample has profoundly increased, you would know what your debt obligation is. You would still only be paying off $2 million over the course of however many years the mortgage is. And that gets really interesting um, when you start to think about the use of Ample on kind of decentralized lending protocols and some of these more DeFi platforms today. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the journey. Tell us about your background and what the need that you identified was in the space and how you came to the conclusion that this is what you wanted to spend your time investing in. For sure. Um, it's a really good question. Um, so my background originally is not so much in, in finance or economics, but rather in, in engineering. So I studied mechanical engineering originally at UC Berkeley um, and increasingly uh, got more and more into computer science as I was drawn into kind of the research of robotics, but ultimately just kept leaning more towards software and got pulled into kind of this startup world afterwards. Um, and I remember when I was first introduced to Bitcoin, this was very early on, I had only read the paper. Um, my initial impression of it was that this is crazy. I mean, why would any technologist design a system that's so unscalable? That was the question, one question that stood out for me. And then the second question was like, why does it have a fixed supply? I, I just had this vague understanding that we once had this gold standard. We once had kind of Bretton Woods and you know, dollars that were redeemable for gold. And we went away from that. And I kind of assumed that was for a reason. Um, and um, then I kind of just dismissed it as unlikely to succeed. It's too complicated, right? Um, it doesn't scale. And I'm not sure why it's fixed supply. Uh, but in the back of my mind, it did keep turning. I, I eventually came to understand that, well, well, it's super unscalable. I mean, the designers of that protocol made huge concessions around scalability in favor of censorship resistance, right? Because there was a history of monies being shut down when they you know, were introduced in competition to sovereign currencies. And uh, I remember thinking also that it was very profound that they were able to finally articulate scarcity in a purely digital context. Because you know, as you know, things that are on the internet are kind of default, not scarce, right? You take a photo, it gets copy and pasted a, a million times, right? How do you create scarcity in digital context? So I, I understood that they succeeded in censorship resistance. They succeeded in creating scarcity. And in doing so, they succeeded in creating a digital gold, um, which I wasn't really that attracted to because like as a technologist, you kind of, you don't, digital gold doesn't sound as cool as like digital cash or digital dollar, right? Digital gold just doesn't have that same appeal as it might've had for, for folks of a different generation. Um, and then it wasn't until the launch of the Ethereum platform that I started to seriously think about maybe working in the space um, because, I mean, that was an invitation, right, to kind of design monetary assets, to design kind of things, contracts on top of a blockchain. Um, and around that time, me and my co-founder, Brandon, who um, is, you know, just he was a Google search engineer when I originally met him working kind of on indexing, um, but had moved on to, to the MAPS program at, at Uber. Um, we started just kind of 
doing kind of weekly white paper readings. It, we were just trying to understand what was going on with all the kind of innovation on Ethereum. And we kept on asking like, what are the virtues of the blockchain technology? What was it meant for? And, and many of the things that we saw like utility tokens that were kind of thinking about um, these tokens as a placeholder for equity, for some sort of value capture associated with this other utility, um, didn't make sense. Like, how could it possibly be cheaper to to design a CDN that ran on the blockchain? You know, like how could it how could it be sensible to create Uber right on the blockchain? It didn't make sense, but it certainly did make sense for the design of monetary assets. Right. And so that led us to ask the question of like, well, what's wrong with the monetary assets today? You know, if, is there anything wrong? What's wrong with Bitcoin? What's wrong with gold? You know, what's wrong with the dollar? And and those questions led us to um, some of our academic advisors at the Hoover Institute, which is the political and economic think tank yeah. at Stanford, Neil Ferguson and Manny Rincon Cruz, who have been thinking about some of these questions and are part of this network of folks who have been thinking about these sorts of questions for decades. You know, like Milton Friedman was once at the Hoover Institute as well. Yeah, for those who don't know, this is an incredibly prestigious uh, institution at Stanford University, I believe, uh, that focuses on these monetary issues uh, from pr principally from a libertarian perspective. Uh, and it's such an interesting journey. I'm curious to hear more uh, about how two guys with solid engineering backgrounds uh, got involved thinking about monetary economics, monetary policy, and some of the more philosophical issues uh, around digital assets. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it really began with our curiosity around the blockchain and then really diving deep into like what specific value is being added by proof of work and decentralization and how could that be leveraged to improve upon what we have today. And the one thing about Brandon and I is like, we, we've been around, you know, we we're a little bit older than some of these folks in the space. And, you know, Brandon has written many, many kind of lines of code, you know, gone to heroic efforts to help scale things at Google and Uber. And, you know, he'd be the first to acknowledge that one day every line of code he'd ever written would disappear. Um, and in my case, I mean, I lost my dad at a very young age, being very curious about um, the, the footprint of information that a person leaves behind um, as kind of a way of living on, right, so to speak. And, and so uh, I'd always been very curious with um, this concept of how how might you build something that could live longer than yourself, right? How might you encode a set of values into something, um, you know, bigger, right? And and the Bitcoin protocol um, certainly had that quality. They they had done something that mankind hadn't been able to do before. We've always had these banks, and and we've had you know uncollateralized um, you know money like fiat money since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we've never been able to create commodity money. It's like a digital gold. Like that's a breakthrough, right? I'm I'm picturing Isaac Newton toiling away, right, um, and failing, right? Famously obsessed with alchemy to create man-made gold. Um, and and now here comes Bitcoin, whom everybody's complaining is like only a digital gold, right? And so a big part of this journey was like leaning into digital gold and commodity monies and understanding the virtues of that instead of like apologizing for Bitcoin not being a digital dollar. Um, and it is much more godlike to create a commodity money like gold. It's a natural resource. And so we really kind of were listening very carefully to the folks at the Hoover Institute about like, you know, what we ought to be reading to better understand like what an ideal commodity money would be like what an ideal reserve currency would be like uh, and what the qualities of such an asset might be like and you know originally we came to them with um 
a version of our original version called the Fragments Protocol of Ampleforth before before Ampleforth, and it was kind of an algorithmic reserve, and it had you know, it was a bank, right? I didn't even understand the definition of bank at the time, but at the end of the day, it had a, a, a reserve, and and it would algorithmically kind of collateralize it. It would try to maintain price stability and quantity stability. And they looked at it and, you know, they were just like, yeah, not so interested. Good luck. Right. <laughs> then when we took away the reserve and we really kind of simplified the protocol to be basically like Bitcoin, except for supply volatile instead of price volatile. That's when they were like, whoa, 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 you should come to lunch. You know, Manny's like, it's my birthday next weekend. Let's work together. Let's talk more. Um, something immediately stood out to them when it became like it seemed to be the solution to a longstanding problem rather than another foolish attempt to recreate central banking, you know, in a decentralized context. And yeah, I mean, that was such an interesting journey. Just, I guess the other part of being around for a little bit longer, like me and Brandon, we start to really appreciate simplicity. Mm. The simpler a system is, the better. It's perfect when you can't take another thing away. Um, uh, And that's, I think, something that some of the younger folks in the space don't yet appreciate, right? There have been so many forks of Ample where they're just adding these features that we kind of painstakingly removed over the course of a year. Um, and it causes it causes them to break. Um, and, and we just, we really wanted something that couldn't break like Bitcoin, but added value that was nonetheless more useful that could be the basis of a new alternative financial ecosystem. Well, you know, now that we've explored a little bit of the journey, the history, the context, the philosophy, tell us about the use cases, the actual nuts and bolts uh, implementations, how it's being used and how you foresee it being used in the future. Yeah, I mean, so right now, initially when the Apple launched, it, it you know was much more kind of a speculative instrument in the sense that you could buy at a low market cap, right? Like at a $10 million market cap. And if it grew to a $100 million market cap, you would have 10 extra money, just like any other coin. Um, and then the first use case that we introduced um, about a year ago uh, was um, a liquidity mining use case. So this is before that trend caught on. We were very early on that wave and we, we created something called a geyser. Uh, because we had all this kind of undistributed uh, ample in the eco, eco fund. There's no proof of work emission schedule for it. And, and we wanted a kind of a pro- programmatic way of distributing that to folks. And so rather than asking them to prove um, the solution to kind of arbitrarily complex mathematical puzzles, we asked them to prove liquidity by, by staking ample um, alongside ETH um, on Uniswap and then taking kind of that LP token and depositing it into these geysers. And, and in exchange for that, they would receive an emission of, um, of, of Ample from the eco fund. That ended up being the first like miniature bank um, that was built for Ample, specifically for the distribution of Ample. Um, and that, that bootstrapped a great deal of growth. Um, and so that uh, was kind of a, an important use case that's just kind of fun. Um, But I would say the next really big use case that we've been waiting for for a long time and very, very excited about is is lending. Um, So, you know, there's a proposal on Aave that we have a great deal of support for for the use and inclusion of Ample as a lending asset. And this really um, it's a big deal because uh, when you're on like compound compound and Aave, it really kind of mostly makes sense only to borrow stable coins. Right. Because let's, let's say I deposit a bunch of ETH and I want to borrow against it. I want to borrow, you know, a stable coin so that I know what my debt obligation is. Right. And so um, I can 
I can de-risk being kind of auto-liquidated by, by basic like market fluctuations. I can borrow a thousand USDC. I know I'm on the hook for a thousand USDC. It won't suddenly become like you know $10,000 worth of some cryptocurrency. And right. so it really only makes sense to borrow uh, stable coins. And uh, of course, like today's stable coins are either kind of um, censorable, highly permissioned in, in that they rely on traditional banking custodians or extremely unreliable in the sense that they can't endure kind of natural market forces like we see with, you know, Titan today and, and the Fae yeah. of yesterday and, um, you know, By the, the way, maker, right? We, yeah, we should say we're recording here uh, on Thursday, June 17th. Titan uh, has just gone effectively to zero from about a $2 billion market capitalization. And, you know, I know this is something that we were talking about a little bit uh, off camera. This is some of the challenge and it's, it's also bucketed as a quote unquote programmatic stable coin. So talk a little bit about what's happened there uh, and how Ampleforth in your view is different. I mean, I think that what we realized, um, I mean, with with Amples, again, is it's unbreakable because I mean, the secret is not such a big secret. It, it, it's the fact that it doesn't seek to remove volatility, it just translates volatility, right? So we concluded that you could either have something that is unreliable um, and kind of you know, even like, for example, central bank currencies, right? It's, uh, we rely on the sale of bonds. Um, and that's a very scary thing. I, I specifically remember, um, you know, reading a chapter in Neil's book, uh, and the, the beginning quote was um, something that like, if I could be reincarnated, I would, I used to think I would want to be a, an astronaut or the president or something like that. But, you know, nowadays, um, I wish I could be reincarnated as the bond market. You can intimidate everyone. You can intimidate presidents. You can intimidate yeah. countries, right? And and that's so, a, I believe that's a uh, James Carville quote, right? When it is a James Carville. President yeah. Clinton said, I, I want to be the bond market. You can intimidate I want to be the Exactly. Um, bonds are a scary thing. And, and um, you know, for a very long time, um, the DeFi space or the crypto space, even before DeFi was convinced that that was the solution that a free market economy could support kind of bonds. Um, no, that doesn't work, right? I mean, in a central bank system, we have, you know, sovereign money printing authority, the ability to force the use of, you know, said currency for the payment of taxes and goods and services. Um, that's why, you know, you can get it with a lot of flexibility. Um, and you can kind of print money um, without immediate price inflation. Um, but, you know, in the free market, you know, nobody has to take on any sort of debt that they don't want to. So this was very scary. And, 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 and one analysis that we came to as a result of looking at these kind of bond based approaches, which we ba began with was like, um, you've got to look at what happens to your system in the event of a secular decrease in demand, because that happens all the time. For the meaning for the asset and the risk of in the bond markets, you're talking about similarly. We've seen currency crisis, in fact, yeah. precipitated by the lack of demand in the fixed income in the bond markets. Yeah, and also the, that's that's true. And, and I think at the end of the day, like it, it, exactly, it's common and natural for this to actually happen. So imagine, you know, there's a billion dollars of currency in a certain circulation, and that's supporting an economy just fine. And suddenly, suddenly something about that economy changes, and you simply don't need a billion dollars with that currency, and you go to $500 million with that currency. And that's the new equilibrium, the new steady state required volume of currency to support an economy. Well, if you've kind of, you know, you know, relied on the sale of bonds to endure that, you know, decrease in supply, you've kind of anchored at this watermark of a billion. And there's all that debt that sits there, right? And so the question of like, how long does it take to get back there? And, and you know, um, 
what conditions would, would that require? It, it's just, it's not a good look, right? It kind of is a system that requires on um, an ever increasing, a monotonically increasing demand for the currency and the bonds. So that was like lesson one, uh, analyze your system. Uh, can it survive a, a secular decrease in demand? And, and the Ample protocol can, because it can remove supply without requiring folks to buy um, the promise of a future coin right and and um meaning, it was just very meaning simple by you know meaning effectively Debt. yeah yeah an option yeah, by, yeah yeah so by basically by burning uh, or minting you remove the need for the external demand factor because you can just adjust on supply that's right that's right um and so that was a one a key to robustness i would say in the case of these fractional reserve um currencies um i'm not even sure what the goal is, but I do know that, you know, because like if you're building a cryptocurrency stablecoin, like the holy grail of it, as it were, it would be something that's like just as decentralized as Bitcoin, but just as stable as the dollar, right? And so we have on the one end of the spectrum things like Tether or USDC that are fully collateralized. They're just as stable as the dollar, but they're not, they're not kind of um, censorship resistant. They're not decentralized right. the way Bitcoin is. The other end of the spectrum, you've got you know these fully alg algorithmic approaches that are extremely unreliable and, and largely depend on bonds, and then you've got these fractional systems in between. They're like, okay, we're going to tolerate some kind of centralized collateral like USDC, USDT, um, but we're also going to introduce a bit of adaptive supply along the way. Um, it can spice up the incentive mechanism, and it means that like maybe one day we could tiptoe into a universe that's truly censorship resistant. It became the easier thing to promise after we saw a lot of these purely algorithmic approaches fail. It's like, okay, we know the fully collateralized version works, but it's censorable. We know the fully algorithmic version doesn't work, but you know uh, it is decentralized. Why can't we just let's just start promising things that are in between, which I would say are neither here nor there. They're fractionally collateralized, um, so therefore not truly censorship resistant, um, and and also not truly reliable um, because right. the remaining right. collateral is hyper volatile. And if we had stable decentralized collateral to begin with, you know all these problems would have gone away anyways. So and, and by the way, we've we talking about the partially collateralized coins. We've also seen evidence of that uh, with uh, in the currency markets, right? So there's something that's partially uh, reserved against in U.S. dollars. Uh, a government attempts to maintain a peg. The yep. peg breaks because speculators are shorting it. So yep. effectively, this is something that's that's actually been tried, and we know uh, it usually ends in tears. It certainly has been tried, and it ends in um, a very specific way. And this is, again, the genius of Manny, my uh, beloved academic advisor, is that he has this you know model called the functional trilemma. Um, and it, it, it kind of really just says that, like, you know, you can have adaptive supply, durable value, you know, a stable peg, right? You can't have, you can't really have all three of those things in equal measure. You're always going to want to prefer two out of three. That's why it's a trilemma. So, so Evan, like, let's walk through those. Let's walk through each one of those because I think it's a fascinating point. Sure. So, I mean, one is um, like a stable peg, right? So this would be a, a, a stable kind of exchange rate to an underlying piece of collateral, right? Like for example, imagine like the dollar was being you know exchanged at a fixed exchange rate to gold under Bretton Woods or like things like the Hong Kong dollar, like other collateralized currencies can have a stable peg or they can have um, durable value, right? Where, you know, like um, the, the supply isn't like wildly changing, like in the case of uh, Bitcoin, right? It kind of has this store value property in that it, it can't be arbitrarily inflated. You can't 
force it to kind of, you know, hyperinflate. And then there's this third kind of uh, vertice of the triangle called adaptive supply. Um, where like our fiat money has, has this kind of um, supply that can adapt to the needs of the economy in general. And if you look at these media of exchange, like so people often talk about the three functions of money as unit of account, media of exchange, store of value. Um, these media of exchange monies, right, um, they tend to kind of uh, live on at the intersection of adaptive supply and durable value. These store of value currencies um, tend to live at the intersection of stable peg durable value. And the unit of account currency of which like we're kind of new and, and part of live at the intersection of adaptive supply and stable pay. Now, going back to what we were saying about the fractional um, reserve currency is it, it clearly is anchoring on stable pe peg and durable value with the hope of adaptive supply. It's kind of like secure in, 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 in two legs of the race and pushing towards another. And like you said, uh, when push comes to shove, um, it has to abandon one vertice and become worth only as much um, kind of collateral as continues to exist, right? And so it kind of reverts back to just, you know, what remains of it, its kind of redeemable underlying currency. And so that's exactly what happened here. So a lot of this stuff has happened before um, and, and I guess will happen again. And, you know, I think it's really important to kind of explore the economic history and the um, of, of what has been tried so that we can learn things, um, so that we can try new things and answer new questions rather than kind of repeating the mistakes of the past. And so in the example of the fractional collateralized currencies, I'm, I'm not really sure what they're trying to accomplish because they're not truly decentralized. And I, I do know that it would revert back to just kind of whatever stable collateral remains in the reserve. And right. Um, as a baseline. Well, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I'm just, at least there is that baseline, right? There, there are alternative realities where there's just no baseline, but I'm not really sure what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and of course, there are also the, the fully collateralized, fully reserved coins like USDC uh, and, uh, and Paxos, which are holding one-to-one uh, dollar value. And as long as you trust the uh, the audit trail, you believe that they're collateralized on a one-to-one -one basis. In theory, they should hold at that peg. Yeah, and so I think, you know, to your point there, it's like, look, imagine you're USDC and or Paxos and you're part of the crypto verse, but you want to provide a reliable product. Um, it seems to me that the holy grail for you would be kind of reasonably stable decentralized collateral, right? Like if you could swap out some of these dollars that are custodied by bank accounts for financial instruments that are, you know, have predictable risk profiles or, or kind of um, lower volatility in general. Well, that might be a wonderful thing. And, and, you know, if you kind of zoom out and look at DeFi where we are, um, I mean, my most trusted advisors would say that this is much, we're much more close to like 14th century Venice than 18th century England. And that is to say there's a bunch of rocks, right? Um, and, you know, like this kind of early ecosystem, but not enough to, to start to issue banknotes on top of the rocks, right? The rocks need to be kind of refined into um, financial instruments that, you know, allow for the issuance of a banknote on top of it. And and one when I say refined, I mean a very specific thing. Like you could take the volatility of something like Bitcoin, and and kind of stratify it into um, something that has half the volatility of a Bitcoin and something that has double the volatility of the Bitcoin. And as long as the numbers all add up, you've kind of resegmented the risk. And of course, there needs to be a market for this leveraged Bitcoin, like a 2x leveraged Bitcoin, and there needs to be a market for this deleveraged Bitcoin. 
Um, but then you have a margin instrument and you have a safe asset and you can use the safe asset as collateral for the issue of banknote. And so as we designed Ample, we kind of were thinking about like, well, what, what kind of input asset, right, would make um, for the best and most robust refinement product, right, refinement process that would result in kind of, I guess, collateralized debt securities, if you will, that are, you know, leverage and deleverage. And so we really kind of thought of Ample as kind of that, like the thing that you put into uh, a system that kind of splits risk into low medium risk bonds, um, of which each has its own market purpose and the low, lowest risk version of which can be used as safe asset collateral by the issue of a bank. And of course, the beautiful thing about DeFi is everything is just fully transparent. There should be no obfuscation of risk whatsoever and everything can just add up nicely and neatly. So that's kind of where, you know, yeah. we see things going. Just we're, we're a few instruments away from from a sustainable alternative financial ecosystem. And how does that look when you look forward about uh, what a sustainable decentralized ecosystem looks like in your view? Uh, what does it look like? How long do you think it will take uh, to get there? And what might be some of the use cases? I mean, very often I hear people who aren't in the space saying, I don't really understand why this decentralization is such a big deal, they say. Uh, you know, if we have dollar stable coins that can serve in contracts, I know that they're fully reserved. Why do I care, goes their argument, uh, if it is a truly decentralized system? Yeah, I mean, I think the EV zoom out a little bit, um, you know, kind of, I, I'm, I'm kind of a follower of the Hayek school of thought, the, the kind of denationalization of money. Um, and that's more about just this realization that unlike law and language, money hasn't been you know, subject to competition because it's always been under the control of, of sovereign monopolies, right? Like in the past, anytime somebody kind of tried to introduce a competing currency that was kind of washed away um, or regulated away. Um, and for this reason, these fiat monies and these central bank monies are vulnerable you know, to inflation, right? And boom bust cycles. And that's really it. Right. So it's not the it's not terrible. We're I feel like the central bank system we have and love today is doing the best they can. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, you get to this realization that um, even the most well-intentioned poly, policymakers, um, based on a system of central banking, um, you know, ultimately the asset will be vulnerable to inflation and boom bus cycles. It can exacerbate boom cycle bus cycles, right? Um, in, in the case of like counter cyclical stimulus, like we're trying to simulate our way out of a, um, a recession. We don't know what the long-term consequences of that will be, but we know that eventually it'll crash again. That will result in dislocations. People are not fond of these boom and bus cycles and they're not fond of the intractable nature of these cycles. And, and um, it's also very much the case that without any sort of kind of rules-based discipline around the issuance of money on top of kind of an existing monetary base, that you'll always face this potential for um, runaway inflation. And so while today the dollar um, has, has held up fantastically well, it wasn't so long ago that, you know, following Bretton Woods um, and, you know, from the 70s onward, like we saw like, you know, pretty, pretty scary inflation and and not everybody has right. access to these dollars right like i mean there are places that are undergoing you know inflation today and they they'd prefer to hold an insanely volatile asset like bitcoin that their government can't tell them to stop holding to their own currency they prefer to hold you know broken refrigerator in that case as well to like your own currency if you're going through hyperinflation but 
That's it. I think it's, you know, there are kind of ideological reasons for crypto in general. And it really kind of comes down to, you know, um, you know, refuge against voluntary inflation and checking its boom and bust cycles. And, you know, there are more practical reasons for participating in cryptocurrency today, which would be like, you know, to diversify your portfolio. And so, I mean, I guess things get really interesting when you can create an alternative ecosystem that can exert pressure against the existing system, because that's how you keep the existing system in check. So imagine you're a really irresponsible policymaker, but there's this alternative that people can simply choose that's like rules-based and reliable. Well, that's just going to encourage you to be a responsible policymaker, right? I remember reading in an an IMF magazine around 2018, um, I feel like they were discussing the possibility, like they they were actually really talking about, like, imagine when folks start using cryptocurrencies as a unit of account, what, what does that mean for our job as central bankers or our job as advisors of central bankers, right? What do we tell them to do? Does it mean that now it's their job to kind of conduct open market operations on a commodity-like currency, you know, marketplace? Um, and the one takeaway from them was, well, it, it certainly means that we should shape up and make sure that, you know, we produce, you know, uh, stable units of account. And so that's precisely what Hayek had called for in, in the denationalization of money. Just um, a credible alternative uh, keeps all players in check. And um, yeah. I think that that is the kind of ideological promise of an alternative financial ecosystem. And I think it's kind of... Yeah one of the biggest potential um, outcomes for blockchain technology. So as we get near the end of this interview, Evan, uh, give us a sense of what your outlook is for the future with Ample, uh, a one, three, five time your time horizon. What might folks be doing of it? What might the use cases look like? And why do you view that as something that would be important and beneficial to do? For sure. I mean, one year timeline, I, I see us kind of becoming more and more ubiquitous across the various layer one platforms moving cross chain as we recently did uh, onto PSC. Um, I also foresee us kind of being used as a lending asset. They're both kind of um, ideologically interesting reasons for using a non-collateralized currency like um, Ample for lending, but also speculative reasons for doing so. Um, and then kind of, you know, further down the line, three-year timeline, I foresee Ample being refined into, like I said, stratified risk debt securities of low, medium, and, and high risk that kind of all add up to the original risk profile of the asset. But each of those stratified instruments will have its own role to play as a risk-reward asset in a broader marketplace. And the output of that would be the ideal kind of safe asset collateral for the issue of a decentralized stablecoin that's crypto-collateralized. Um, but in a way where risk is extremely transparent. Evan, such an interesting conversation from the technical perspective, from the economic perspective, from the philosophical perspective. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ash. I really enjoyed this. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com.